You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. And Evergen, powering the transition to a resilient, renewable, decentralised energy system of the future. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach, ITK director and analyst and contributor to Renew Economy. David, how are you? You must be fully webinared out today. I think we've all uh, done a lot of webinars uh, through this. I, I've listened to one or two that really took my fancy uh, recently. But uh, in general, I trust all our listeners are, are up for a podcast. Uh, far better than a webinar, of course. <laughs> Absolutely. And look, we've got a great guest today. Um, I'd like to, um, knocking over his laptop in front of him, I'd like to welcome to this uh, Energy Insiders podcast, Professor Ross Garneau. Um, Ross, um, thanks for joining us. Uh, good to be here, Giles and David. Look, um, we've got you on board. Not so much to talk about. Um, just in your broad views, you've given a series of lectures recently at the um, in in Melbourne about Australia's opportunities and the you know renewable energy superpower. But you're also heavily involved yourself. And this week, you've announced that um, your private company, I think you hold it with other people, Sunshot Energy, has retaken control of Zen Energy as part of a demerger from Sanjeev Gupta's Simic Energy. And if we go back a couple of years, Sanjeev Gupta came in in a hail of um, headlines in, um, in 2017, bought the Wyala Steelworks, vowed to change it to a green steel powerhouse, or at least that was his vision, and then signed up with you guys um, at Simic Energy. But um, three years later, his plans still be on course, but you now have, you, you, you've separated, you've parted ways. You tell us it's amicable. Tell us what happened and, and what you plan to do. Well, it's been a, a good story, Sanjeev's um, involvement in South Australia uh, and there's no doubt of his commitment to uh, uh, turning that steelworks into something much more efficient, much larger and uh, 100% based on uh, renewable energy with zero emissions. Um, and uh, I strongly support that and have encouraged him and helped him uh, 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 think through those issues. Uh, but uh, and, uh, w w when he uh, uh, took up a majority interest in Zen Energy, the company that I used to chair, um, and it became Zen Energy, he had 50.1%. Uh, the, the old Australian shareholders of uh, Zen had 49.9%. Uh, uh, we were... Uh, going to uh, uh, supply the, uh, uh, the steelworks with, um, with the power that he needed, uh, zero emissions, uh, low cost, reliable, uh, very much larger quantities. And we're also going to uh, uh, play a role in transforming Australian electricity markets more generally. Uh, we shared those objectives, but in practice, uh, uh, we worked out that Sanjeev uh, was constant, was focusing much more on the development projects around the steelworks and uh, uh, we, the rest of the team, uh, myself and my old colleagues, uh, uh, were, were uh, very keen to uh, play a, a bigger and broader role in the Australian electricity transmission. So we talked about uh, uh, the issues uh, about a year ago. We said to each other... Uh, 
uh, there's a very good uh, Chinese saying that uh, uh, that describes the situation we're in, and and uh, that saying uh, been around for four thousand years. Uh, same bed, different dreams, uh, and uh, when, once you recognise that's the case, then uh, <laughs> then uh, uh, then getting into uh, different beds. Uh, has some advantages. So uh, we, we agreed um, the beginning of last November that the merger was the right way to go uh, and uh, agreed that, that Sanjeev would uh, would keep those parts of the business that he was most interested in and wanted to put a lot of effort into expanding and that's uh, what's necessary for uh, the, the uh, Wireless Steelworks to become zero emissions and much bigger. And we'd concentrate on uh, uh, on uh, supplying re- zero emissions energy uh, to Australian households and businesses more generally. Uh, uh, we had a strong base in South Australia and uh, some base in the eastern states, and uh, we wanted to build all of that. So essentially, uh, we've taken the development assets. Uh, the big ones are around uh, Wyala, the solar farm, the, the battery, the pumped hydro storage. Uh, the old Zen shareholders, Zen shareholders have, have taken uh, the retail and technology parts of the business. Uh, now, separately, uh, my my partner, um, partner in the old Zen Energy, uh, uh, as well as in the new things we're doing, Raymond Spencer and I set up uh, a Central Energy uh, early last year to to uh, uh, build a business on, with, in wholesale markets, uh, trading renewable energy, uh, firming it. Um, and uh, uh, developing uh, uh, renewable energy and uh, uh, and storage assets uh, to supply into the wholesale business, and um, uh, so uh, it's a very neat fit uh, that business that we were developing and is going quite well alongside the uh, the retail assets of of Zen um, mm. Zen. Ren's got the retail license right through the national electricity market, quite big in South Australia, around 10% mm. of the retail market, and uh, uh, only a small position in other states at this stage, but ready to uh, build and grow. Uh, we, we, we want to fairly quickly put uh, uh, Zen Energy and uh, the retail business, the face-to-face uh, with uh, customers will be Zen Energy. Lovely name, Zen, zero emissions now. Uh, well, and, <laughs> They're both lovely names, uh, Zero Emissions Now and um, and Sunshot. <laughs> yes, yeah, Sunshot is the name that uh, Nobel Prize winner and Secretary for Energy in Obama's uh, uh, cabinet uh, gave to uh, the, the Renewable Energy um, uh, Technology Program that they developed as part of the response to the recession after the great crash of uh, 2008. Indeed. So, so Trump didn't want to keep that name, so we took it. And uh, uh, an honourable history. And yes, Sunshine and Zen are both great names, and they'll both uh, stay in their spheres. But Zen is the uh, the name that will face the market, and Zen will be offering um, uh, businesses and uh, uh, and households uh, uh, throughout Australia uh, uh, competitive, uh, reliable uh, packages of power. Uh, with zero emissions, um, will be Australia's. Uh, it's an old name that uh, that's gone a bit out of fashion. Gen Taylor, 
uh, probably better names for it, but that's what we'll be, uh, uh, either generating or buying uh, uh, purchase power agreements uh, uh, with uh, developers, buying wholesale uh, uh, power uh, or uh, producing it uh, ourselves and uh, making it available uh, competitively to uh, uh, uses of power all over Australia. So if you want to have uh, re reliable power, uh, 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 very competitively priced and zero emissions, then you can come to Zen. And so, Ross, can I ask, uh, you, uh, you mentioned that the May, you have 10% of the South Australian household market by customer number now. Is that, is that did I hear you say no, that? No, by... Uh, by gigawatt hours, by load, and uh, um, how do you, do you do you plan to operate uh, mostly in the household or in the wholesale market? Uh, more in the bigger in, market. In, in the bigger market, and uh, um, won't you need a lot of capital and uh, like debt financing? So, for instance, ERM. Uh, grew very successfully uh, in that way, but you know they took an awful lot of uh, credit guarantees and the like to get there. What's your sort of? Uh, how are you thinking about the finances and all of that? A lot, a lot, David, and uh, uh, we're working through all that now, and uh, uh, we're and make allowing uh, that to uh, to grow the capital base uh, alongside the growth of business. Uh, is uh, one of the, uh, the the management questions uh, as we go along. So uh, that's, as you say, uh, that has to be very much front of mind, and it is. And what well, about... Well, on the... Go on, sorry. Uh, let me ask about Sunshot. I mean, you've got Sunshot uh, and Zen. Is it, uh, I mean, is there a sort of formal relationship that Sunshot will do the development uh, or provide the... Uh, purchasing for for Zen, or or I mean, is it all just still being sorted out? No, it, uh, the, the retail uh, arm and the uh, technology sales arm, you know, equipment like solar PV and batteries uh, is Zen, and the wholesale uh, supply of power uh, at this stage is uh, Sunshot. Now, the, the two uh, companies don't have exactly the same shareholders at this stage. Uh, and so uh, the uh, inter-party arrangements have to be uh, uh, fair and uh, we're working through uh, how that's uh, uh, kept in place. Uh, over time, the relationship can develop and evolve, but uh, where we start on day one as is uh, two uh, separate co uh, companies but with very clearly distinguished roles that are closely complementary. I was saying earlier that uh, our main... Um, uh, uh, the main volume of uh, business at the moment of Zen uh, is uh, in large to fairly large customers, um, uh, uh, but uh, uh, we, over uh, over a long period of time, over fifteen years, uh, uh, Zen has sold a, an awful lot of kit to uh, uh, solar PV and then batteries uh, to households in South Australia, but also uh, some in Victoria and New South Wales. Uh, some in uh, Queensland, and uh, 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 we, one of the early things the new company will do is uh, make a, an offering to uh, a smaller business and smaller retail customers, um, and we'll have a special focus on 
on uh, smaller businesses and households that uh, are producing some of their own solar and will be uh, uh, providing a uh, complementary uh, uh, offering of, uh, of power to balance that out. It's a, um, it's, it's, uh, you, you, you've talked about you've been a, um, a key policy advisor at um, various points in um, over the last uh, 10, 15 years um, with your initial Ghana review and then playing a key role in the formation of the carbon price and the clean energy package that was put together by the Labor and the Greens in um, 2010, 11 and 12. Um, you're now playing, choosing to play an active role in the market. It's, um, it must be pretty competitive out there. Oh, yeah, it is, and uh, uh, not as competitive as it should be. Uh, we've got some pretty healthy oligopolies in parts of the industry, and, of course, in transmission, you, you've got a pretty healthy monopoly. Uh, can't, you can't have a monopoly in uh, transmission or distribution, and uh, everyone who's uh, studied economics, one knows that uh, uh, that gives you quite a challenge uh, regulating uh, price and uh, quality of service uh, with a natural monopoly. Uh, we haven't done that very well, and so uh, we suffer some of the problems of monopoly there. But And uh, similarly, the, as the ACCC has pointed out, the problems of oligopoly on the retail side and uh, in parts of Australia on the generation side, it is very competitive uh, for a new player. And one of the contributions we can make is is uh, introduce some real competition in the market. And I think that's something that Zen has done uh, over recent years in Adelaide, uh, uh, which um, has played a useful uh, social purpose while it's uh, built up our business. Yeah. As an outsider looking in and as an advisor, um, you've talked about the huge opportunities that Australia that presents for Australia as a renewable energy superpower. You've talked about the ability for Australia to convert to 100% renewables even as early as the early 2030s. As a player within the industry, seeing the oligopolies, seeing the monopolies, seeing the regulations and the rules and the market practices and the lack of the, uh, you know, the lack of inertia or maybe the state of inertia with the um, political part, are you still as confident that Australia can actually seize those opportunities? I don't think I've ever been naively confident that we could seize them. My role, Giles, uh, would be to point out how we've got those opportunities. Whether or not we seize them is a different question. And uh, you know, we can be the superpower. We can have a new era of economic expansion and high prosperity, employment growth, incomes growth. Uh, but uh, or, or we can choose uh, not to take the opportunity. Uh, I've been pointing out the immense opportunity there's for the picking, uh, and but I haven't been uh, uh, saying that uh, we're necessarily going to take the opportunities. I, I'm working my bug off myself, have been for for a lot of years uh, to uh, try, try to persuade Australians to uh, pick the fruit that's uh, 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 on the trees in front of them. Uh, but uh, uh, whether or not we do is a matter of choice. Mm. Ross, can I ask, I mean, you, you, you had a lot of um, uh, to do with the previous carbon scheme and you know, I at the time thought that the policy development process, I think we, I'll get the order wrong here, but we, I think we had a green paper and then a white paper, then draft legislation and then legislation. Um, now, what I seem to see is that there's no real willingness to have uh, 
at the at the federal level, either from the Liberals or indeed much from the Labor Party, in terms of proper policy development. I just wondered if you had any broad comment about, uh, I guess, the policy development process and, uh, I mean, and and how you would go about it if you if you um, had to start from the, the the current starting point. Well. The- I did two reviews, of course, one for all of the governments of Australia, six states, two territories, plus the Commonwealth, uh, and then the second one was for the multi-party uh, parliamentary committee on climate change, which had the uh, um, Labor ministers, um, leaders of the Greens and the uh, and the independents in the House of Representatives. So two separate reports. Uh, the first one was a was a very elaborate. Uh, uh, part of a very elaborate policy-making process, very well structured, uh, very detailed and extensive consultations with interested uh, parties, uh, a draft uh, uh, paper uh, put out uh, and I made myself available for discussion, uh, filled every major, every town hall in every major city in Australia, 5,000 in Melbourne, as many as, it, as could fit in, uh, in the other uh, uh, cities. Uh, and that was all very carefully uh, considered, uh, had buy-in from all the, the whole federation, uh, had buy-in from the opposition um, uh, the, in those days, 2000 and, uh, and, and seven and eight, uh, opposition led by uh, Malcolm Turnbull uh, and a lot of consultation with the opposition. Uh, so that was, uh, I, I think, just about the most thorough uh, uh, a process of uh, policy making that I've been involved with in uh, uh, in a long history of involvement in public policy, half a century of it. So uh, uh, that that was quite distinctive for the quality of the of the process. And the second one, um, uh, the multi party committee. Uh, 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 there, we had a shorter time frame, so I didn't uh, repeat the very. Uh, detailed modelling of the Australian economy. It had just been done anyway for the uh, 2008 review. Uh, um, uh, but uh, still, uh, we put out uh, draft papers on every important issue uh, for public discussion. Uh, those papers, one by one, were discussed by the multi-party committee and very earnest and thorough uh, discussion of the issues. And so that, uh, that when... Uh, 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 recommendations uh, went to the cabinet and uh, legislation went to the parliament. It uh, was, was was very well considered. I think you've got a much better chance of getting good policy if you uh, go through those uh, thorough processes. But it's not just on climate policy there's been a deterioration in process. And it's not just in Australia this has happened. Uh, the English-speaking democracies uh, are in trouble, uh, uh, making a lot of... Uh, uh, decisions that uh, are not very good for uh, for our people uh, uh, getting economic outcomes that are rather uh, uh, mediocre um, because because the policy making process has deteriorated. I think we've got to smarten that up, uh, or uh, or our prosperity and our democracy are in trouble. I agree with that very strongly, and I would commend. Uh, you for your part in that process, which at the time sitting in an investment bank, 
uh, I thought was exactly the right way to develop policy. Uh, and now I think we have a bunch of things on it. This is off the topic, but I do think policy development process is very important if we're going to get decarbonisation back on track. And so that's why, I, and, and, and you know a lot about that uh, in a way. And so I, I want to ask another question about that. We, 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 you know, we've had this kind of politicisation of the public service, if you like, and policy being made in secret so that, uh, so that outcomes can be achieved without having to expose them to, to fresh air and sunlight, as, as we used to say. I mean, you've got the uh, state ministers that are all happy to sit around at forums and say what they're doing for renewable energy and a, and a federal government that distances itself and, and, and is pursuing a, a, a gas-style or different agenda. And I want to say that uh, gas is at least not coal, if you want to look at the politics of it. Uh, but uh, I'm... My question is, how can if you were sitting there and uh, you you wanted to get things, would you go to the states first and encourage them to have a, a a state common policy, or how would you get this process back on back on track? Well, I, I think it's a bit different in uh, uh, the, in electricity and industries closely connected to that renewable energy, the things that renew economy is strongest on, uh, and and some other areas of decarbonisation. The thing that's changed dramatically since my detailed modelling of the costs and benefits of uh, Australia playing its part in the movement to to deal with climate change, uh, what's changed dramatically since that modelling is uh, the dramatic reduction in the uh, cost of zero emissions energy. And uh, uh, my, my uh, views then are uh, on the public record in infinite detail, 659 pages in the first report and uh, plus 10,000 pages of uh, working papers. So you know what I thought at the time. And I, after enormous consultation with, with supported by a very strong team of people, um, uh, we, we wrote into the modelling an assumption that the, the costs of... Um, Solar power would would fall by a few percent per annum. Uh, uh, now, at the time when my work came out, uh, the main criticism of that is that I was overregging the pudding because a, a EMO at the time was working on the basis there'd be almost no reduction in costs of uh, solar power in its uh, forward estimates of uh, uh, demand for power. But uh, uh, I wrote in a few percent per annum. Well, that dramatically underestimated uh, the reductions that have taken place in the decade after that work. Uh, uh, the, the basic equipment of solar fell in cost by about 85%. Uh, there have also been very big reductions in wind power with the more efficient, bigger turbines, um, uh, lower manufacturing costs as the industry shifted into China. Uh, and uh, uh, the effects of that has been dramatically to uh, re reduce the cost. So we now have powerful economic forces in the energy sector. Uh, no one's going to build a new coal-based uh, power sector in Australia, uh, generator in Australia, unless the government gifts it to them. And even then, you'd be careful about accepting it if you're required to actually produce from it because uh, the, the, um, at the price of coal, as it, as it was before the recent slump, uh, the cost of uh, the coal alone exceeds the total capital and operating costs of a combination of solar and wind and storage. So... Uh, uh, the, the powerful economic forces driving the uh, uh, the decarbonisation of the electricity sector and uh, 
Charles' uh, side of things I said a couple of years ago about uh, zero emissions by the early 2030s. Uh, uh, it, uh, you'd have to uh, 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 avoid opportunities for re reducing costs of energy to let it take that long. Um, uh, but uh, it's, it's different in uh, some, some other sectors of the economy uh, for, uh, for a lot of manufacturing uh, industries, um, uh, chemical manufacturers, uh, plastics, uh, where uh, the, the uh, uh, the base of the manufacturing is uh, fossil carbon uh, and hydrocarbon uh, um, uh, from oil, gas or coal, uh, the zero emissions paths are going to uh, require a shift uh, to, uh, to to biomass and, and uh, uh, it's not so clear that, that costs will actually be lower in those sectors and so you won't have the same powerful uh, um, uh, economic drivers of the transition as you have for electricity. Transport, uh, there'll be powerful economic drivers, uh, but you do need, as you do in electricity, some uh, uh, changes in infrastructure and support uh, in infrastructure for the transition if it's to go rapidly. But I think that transport will go the way of electricity. Within a few years, the electric car, uh, will, the, the cost of a new car will be... Uh, comparable to an internal combustion uh, car uh, and then it will keep getting lower and the, the operating costs will, will be hugely lower for the electric car. It's a simpler engine, uh, so uh, much lower maintenance costs, much longer life, uh, depreciation costs therefore less, uh, uses less energy and a much cheaper form of energy in Australia, uh, re um, re renewable uh, electricity. So uh, for all those reasons, uh, uh, there'll be powerful economic forces driving the decarbonisation of transport, but but in in areas that uh, uh, that, that require uh, use of biomass, uh, um, uh, some in agriculture, it's uh, genuinely difficult to get to zero emissions, and so we're going to have to balance that with um, uh, sequestration of carbon, negative emissions, uh, carbon in the landscape or in uh, in other ways, uh, and. Uh, they're all the areas where you're going to need active policy to get down to zero net emissions. How, did, how does Australia become a renewable energy superpower then? Um, becoming 100% renewables for its own electricity grid is a great step and a magnificent achievement should it arrive or even close to 100%. I think we sometimes get a bit obsessed by that big round number. Um, to become a superpower sounds like we're exporting stuff, and if it's not going to be um, uh, clean fuel itself, it's going to be green metals. Which do you now see dominating that particular process? Do you think we're going to be exporting vast amounts of hydrogen for use by um, North Asian countries as a fuel, as a clean fuel for their own economies? Or do you think the bigger opportunity lies with what Sanjeev Gupta is planning and other people are talking about um, in, in, in green steel? And I guess just to sort of roll up a, another question to that, are they going to be new industries or are they going to be converted um, existing manufacturing uh, facilities? Well, lots of bits to that question. Uh, it's not going to be either or. Uh, uh, hydrogen is going to be very important all over the world in the zero emissions world economy. And it's going to be hydrogen made from renewable energy. There might in some favourable locations be uh, zero emissions or near zero emissions uh, from uh, 
uh, use of uh, gas and uh, capturing and geologically storing emissions. But that's with a lot of costs in that, so it's unlikely that much of that will be competitive. And so it's going to be uh, hydrogen made from renewable energy. Uh, Australia, why Australia has the potential to be a superpower is, first of all, because uh, we've got much higher quality uh, solar and wind resources, and it's the combination of them that can really drive down power costs for uh, um, manufacturing processes like uh, production of, of uh, renewable hydrogen. Um, if we've got that low-cost uh, hydrogen, we, we, we'll have an opportunity that uh, a lot of countries don't have. Uh, the extremes are densely populated uh, uh, industrial countries like Korea and Japan, where uh, there's very limited resources for uh, uh, for, for, for uh, uh, renewable energy. I remember uh, I was in the offices of Zen Energy in Adelaide and uh, received a visit from the mayor of Seoul. And uh, he he explained that he had uh, uh, a commitment to make uh, uh, Seoul a zero emission city. And he said, uh, I don't know if you know Seoul. Well, I do know Seoul. But uh, he said everyone lives in a 30 or 40 uh, story building and a, a tiny little roof. And uh, you, 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 you couldn't uh, produce more than one floor's worth of electricity uh, uh, from the... Uh, available rooftops and there's not much land um, apart from that so we will need to import hydrogen for for uh, uh, electricity uh, and that will be part of the story especially to uh, uh, Japan and to uh, uh, Korea uh, but uh, it's it's uh, technically uh, complicated uh, but, but to uh, transport liquid hydrogen uh, uh, intercontinentally um, that it can be done and it will be done, uh, uh, but it's expensive. Um, hydrogen uh, doesn't um, uh, liquefy until you get down to temperatures very close to absolute zero, uh, the absolute zero being the, uh, uh, the temperature at which uh, electrons cease to vibrate in, uh, in the atom, and uh, uh, that, that takes tremendous amounts of energy to uh, put uh, and atom in that state, uh, um, lower than 250 degrees, minus 250 degrees centigrade compared with methane and LNG, which will liquefy at a bit below uh, minus 150. And, and it's not, not a linear movement in increased energy requirements as you get uh, lower and lower temperatures of liquefaction. So you lose uh, the best part of half of the energy content of the hydrogen in the process of liquefying it. And, and it's, once you've got it as a liquid, it's not that easy to transport. If you put it in the standard LNG tanker, uh, the, uh, well, for a start, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the low temperatures you have to maintain and the high pressures uh, uh, will be a challenge. Uh, for, for, you'll need stronger uh, uh, containers and uh, better insulated. Uh, and the hydrogen atom is so small uh, that uh, you'll start to get seeping out of uh, uh, through the, uh, the, the the steel molecules. Uh, so uh, uh, you need different materials, more expensive, uh, uh, thicker. Uh, so the actual transport is more expensive. So hydrogen in Korea and Japan is going to be very much more expensive, several times more expensive than it is in Australia. Uh, that's not the case with coal. If you take metallurgical coal from uh, Mackay, to Kobe or Shanghai, uh, uh, 
you, you might add 15 to 20 US dollars to uh, a ton to uh, coal at the moment. The price is much lower, but say 150, you're adding 10% to the cost. Well, uh, uh, you, you'll be adding a couple of hundred percent to the cost uh, uh, in um, uh, for hydrogen. And that means that uh, uh, whereas it's actually cheaper to use coal from Mackay in Kobei or Shanghai than in Waiala, uh, for, it won't be like that at all in hydrogen. It'll be very expensive to use Australian uh, hydrogen, low-cost Australian hydrogen, not low-cost by the time you get to uh, Kobei. Um, you won't be using that for, for steel, uh, the natural uh, economic uh, um, pressure will be for uh, uh, the hydrogen to be used in Australia to uh, re reduce iron metal. Similar, although less extreme, in relation to Europe. The Europeans are very serious about uh, decarbonisation of industry in general, their commitment to zero emissions uh, economies. Um, the steel industry, I know the German steel industry very well, the French, they're uh, uh, accepting the reality that uh, they won't be in business at the end of the 2030s if they're not making steel with zero emissions. And so they're thinking about how they do that. They're experimenting with hydrogen-based uh, um, uh, uh, processes and uh, uh, they, they realise that the costs of doing that are very much higher than they would be in, uh, in Australia. Uh, now, they're going to uh, uh, support the decarbonisation of industry with a border tax. That's a decision of the last couple of weeks. Uh, so uh, that will that will uh, uh, pre prevent uh, imported high emissions industrial products entering uh, Europe uh, uh, without paying a penalty that's equivalent to what they would have had to pay uh, if they'd been subject to a European level uh, uh, carbon tax, a carbon price. Uh, now uh, uh, that's going to send the Europeans looking for low-cost sources of. Uh, uh, of of uh, uh, zero emissions metal, and so there'll be some opportunities in Europe as well. Potentially, the opportunities are huge. Uh, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, Sanjeev Gupta's uh, plan, which he's talked about publicly uh, in the last couple of days uh, at, at Wyala. Um, uh, it would to put in a couple of million tons of iron, and that's really the the, the lowest. Uh, uh, scale that makes much sense. It's almost twice as big as the existing plant in in Wyala, but putting a couple of million tons would uh, re require about uh, um, uh, twenty uh, uh, about about ten megawatts of, uh, uh, of of megawatt hours of power for each ton of iron. So you're looking at uh, uh, twenty terawatt hours of power for that plant. Uh, uh, that's that's quite a lot of electricity. I think it's uh, probably uh, much or more than the whole of South Australia uses uh, at the moment. Um, uh, I think that Europeans will do it for Australia before Australia. Sanjeev might do it in Europe before Australia because the Europeans will be uh, knocking on his door. But it would be a big pity if uh, uh, Australia wasn't amongst the first uh, movers because as the world moves in this direction, Australia will be the big economic beneficiary and potentially it, it's huge. Yeah, Australia's by far the world's biggest exporter of iron oxide. We, we supply uh, well over 60% at the moment of uh, China's imports and uh, China accounts for uh, uh, 
60, uh, sorry, uh, just over half uh, of world uh, steel production, um, world steel production turning iron ore. Uh, I think China. I think China's about over half of Australia's iron ore. Uh, sorry, half of Australia's total exports just at the, this month uh, during the COVID kind of thing. Uh, so I think China's got a lot of questions to answer for itself uh, as this European steel, uh, as this European ca carbon tax uh, uh, come comes into being. Now, I think Australia will personally think we'll still have a lot of issues in terms of our transport costs of finished products and markets and, and stuff like that. So, uh, and I think every country will want to try and be energy independent. So for countries like Japan, it might be offshore wind, you know, might, might and then they might make their own hydrogen. So there are a lot, lot of issues, I think, a long way to go, and it's hard to make uh, these big bets too early uh, in the process. Yeah, uh, whether it'll be much... Uh more economically efficient to uh, to use the international opportunities. Uh, autarky is expensive. Uh, there are times in our history and the history of other countries when we've chosen to keep our people poor with protection uh, and uh, times when we've been more open and uh, more prosperous. And China will face that choice. Germany and France will uh, uh, face that choice. Their people will be more prosperous uh, if they use the international opportunities and overwhelmingly they will involve Australia. It's been a fascinating discussion, Ross, um, and uh, I'd, I'd love to continue the discussion, but look, we're probably getting pretty close to the end of our time at the moment. I just wanted to have a quick question to David. Um, with the webinar that I mentioned right at the start of this um, of this, uh, of this, of this uh, podcast, and which probably applies to you too, Ross, actually, but it was one that was held by Transgrid over their sort of transmission plans, and we heard from Alex Wanhouse from AEMO about the integrated system plan. We heard from Matt Keane, the energy minister from New South Wales. We heard about the, um, the, the leading players from Transgrid. Jeez, it was pretty reassuring, despite everything we hear, David, that they're all kind of on board. They see this transition just as Ross has described it, and they're pretty determined to try and make it happen. Were you buoyed by that, or are you still sort of depressed by the um, by the sort of the weight of the policy inertia that sort of surrounds them? Well, I, I do think everyone's getting on, and I think uh, the thing I most admire about Matt Keane, uh, having thought about it all year, is the way that he's found a new way to make things happen without having to go through this big policy development process. The, the one thing the government can do is signal it how keen it is, to use the pun, uh, and two, to uh, make say in black and white that this renewable energy zone will be up and running by 2022. And that's, that's a very clear signal, and, and that's the sort of thing that investors actually will react to. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we can also see that despite everything that everyone's doing, that actually the transmission development is hopelessly slow uh, most of the time. There is a breakdown uh, between the legal authority of the ISP and the AER rules, and the AER actually still has most of the legal force and uh, um, no less a person than ordinary Z Audrey Zebelman has written to the AR saying they're not happy with the way the rules have been implemented to make the ISP happen. We're still seeing lots and lots of transmission delays. We're still seeing solar farms going offline all the time, right now, uh, um, and not just because it's dark <laughs> here in Sydney, uh, but because there are transmission difficulties. So. This, uh, you know, it was a great webinar. It's terrific to hear the enthusiasm, but guys, still got to do a lot better. Indeed, indeed. 
Ross, um, thank you very much for joining this um, podcast. Um, we wish you all the best um, with both Sunshot and Zen Energy. Um, likewise, we wish um, Sanjeev Gupta the best in his endeavours to um, turn Wayala Steelworks into a green steel powerhouse. We hope that um, we can all get things together and become a renewable energy powerhouse as a country. But um, um, Ross, thank you very much and, um, and good luck with it. Okay, thanks. And uh, I look forward to keeping in touch as, as the superpower grows. <laughs> Excellent. I look forward to hearing about how things, how things go in uh, Queensland, Ross. Uh, uh, I think there's a lot to be done with, your renewable, uh, with the renewable resource there. So uh, I look forward to hearing some more about it. <laughs> okay, yeah, it's a big opportunity here, but there isn't a lot of Australia. See you later. You've been listening to the Energy Insiders podcast. Joining us today has been Ross Garneau, the eminent economist and now chief of Sunshot Energy. Um, I'm your host, Giles Parkinson, and co-host David Leach. Thanks once again to our sponsors, Evergen and Pylon. Thanks to all our listeners, and we'll be back next week. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises the performance of residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy of the future.